The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. My guests today, John Corr and C.O. Mitchell. Part 1, An Overview of the Pentateuch. to in discussion. Having completed the overview of the life of Moses, we are continuing today with the Torah, and I am joined with John Call and C.O. Mitchell. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Good afternoon. David. Good afternoon. Well, may I start with the first question? Uh, now we have um, taken a, a, an overview of the life of Moses, I guess it would be helpful to understand the Pentateuch um, and, and the Torah. Uh, so that we can uh, figure out contextually how this all works in in the larger picture. Uh, which of you gentlemen would like to respond to that? Uh, I, I'll take a stab at that. Um, uh, I'd like to first of all talk about the divisions, the, the historic thought of divisions from a uh, evangelical perspective. Normally when we think of the divisions of the Bible, we think of the Old Testament comprised of 39 books and the New Testament comprised of 27 books. Respectfully, as it pertains to the 39 books, we think of the law as one section, Genesis through Deuteronomy. We think of the historical books, Joshua through Esther, the poetic books, Job through the Song of Solomon, and the prophetic books, Isaiah through Malachi. Uh, I won't speak of the denominations or designations of the New Testament in so much as we're beginning at the beginning, and so I'll just speak of uh, that Old Testament division. Interestingly enough, when we begin to read our Bible, uh, our classic habit often is to start with the New Testament and then having proceeded through the New Testament to have a preference for the New Testament literature. And if we care to, or if we are motivated enough, we'll, having started through the New Testament, then finish going back to Genesis and reading from Genesis on. And the reverse is just true. What we ought to do is we really ought to begin at Genesis and proceed through Revelation. That's the way that it was intended. Is there a reason for that, that so many of us take that, that journey by reversing from the, the, the New Testament back to the Old Testament? Is that because we, we simply find the the, uh, the, the, uh, the work of the Old Testament uh, too difficult to handle? Well, I, I think, um, I don't know if you want to, I can answer that, but um, <laughs> I wasn't sure if you're asking, if you're asking Seal or, or me, but uh, I'll jump in. Um, I think part of it is for, especially those of us who are, you know, who are believers in Christ are more familiar with the New Testament, wanting to study the life of Christ. Um, and so we spend a lot of time there. And also the enormity of the Old Testament, uh, the size of it, and um, I think a lot of, uh, of Christians find it easier to start with the New Testament 
um, and um, because the 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 size and maybe the the complexity of the Old Testament, uh, not realizing that the New Testament is really the same story as the Old Testament, it just picks it up from where it left off. Um, so I don't know if you want to add to that uh, as far as uh, why. I would also say that the New Testament is didactic or instructional literature, um, mostly. Uh, and uh, when you're looking at the Old Testament, you're looking at narrative literature. Um, there is uh, less culture in many ways to traverse uh, with going back to the first century than there is going back, let's say, to the time of Genesis or thereabout. And so uh, it is a little bit more um, uh, laborious, if you will, to undertake an effort to uh, study from the uh, uh, Old Testament than it is the New. More so, um, uh, or I should say moreover, it's easier for preachers, frankly. Uh, a lot of the people don't have the kind of appreciation for uh, the Old Testament that they ought have because uh, if you go to your common media ministry and you kind of do an investigation of that media ministry, you'll see far more sermons from uh, the New Testament literature or at least the Gospels, which is transitional Testament literature, than you will see from uh, Old Testament uh, literature. I think what happens, too, is that... Um Many times the Old Testament, people are familiar with the stories, okay? The fall, the flood, you know, uh, Jonah, I mean, a couple of stories in the Old Testament, but they don't see how how they all fit together, how they flow together, uh, where they fit. And a lot of times the Old Testament is used, and we, we speak respectfully. We maybe have some Jewish friends who are who are listening to. We don't speak as old as in... As, as, archaic, archaic or obsolete. It or just, it just, um, absolutely. But... Um, a lot of times, the uh, the Old Testament is used by by pre- preachers as sort of a, a launching pad to bring them back to the New Testament, and we kind of you kind of miss uh, what's there. I mean, it was it was the Bible to the original audience. To when Moses is speaking and, and writing these things, it was the Word of God to them. So uh, part of our challenge is to find out what what would they have gotten out of it, and uh, so and part to, to help us understand is what we're going to do. At least today and probably next week too is is overview of uh, of the tor- of the Torah. If I may, let me just give some reasons, some initiative as to why we should undertake this stor- sort of study uh, in an appreciable way. First of all, because two thirds of our Bible is in the Old Testament. Um, next, because the New Testament can only be fully understood against the background of the Old Testament. Uh, because the Bible of the New Testament writers was the Old Testament. Uh, These writers often quote from the Old Testament, and they assume that their audience is familiar with its characters as well as its content. Uh, More than this, because the same God is the author of both Testaments. You cannot know the character of God well uh, unless you study him in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And because many Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the New Testament, and interestingly enough, many have yet to be fulfilled. Uh, Let me just call this to your attention. You remember the book of Daniel in which he sees this colossal figure, and he sees the Babylonian Empire, and he sees the Medo-Persian Empire. He sees the Grecian Empire. He sees the Roman Empire. But then there is an empire that is yet to come that is comprised of uh, clay and metal. And that empire having uh, ten kings and going to have a 
sovereign that sits on the throne uh, that will come to be known as the Antichrist or the man of perdition, son of perdition, as referred to in Thessalon- uh, in Thessalonians and also referred to in uh, Revelation, uh, the beast and the false prophet and individuals of this nature. These are yet to come and they are indeed spoken of in the book of Daniel. The resurrection that is yet to come has not yet taken place and yet there is a reference to a resurrection in the book of Daniel. And so if we ignore this, we're still ignoring revelation um, uh, that is quite relevant in our own day and time. And we see the uh, New World Order trying to shape itself in that way, either voluntary or involuntarily. We see these truths yet coming to pass. And so to ignore it is remiss. Uh, John, you were going to add something to that. Oh, just uh, just along the lines of, of uh, when Paul wrote his epistles or when Matthew wrote, or when um, whoever, an apostle or, or Jesus, they would appeal or try to prove who Christ was via the Old Testament. Uh, as Christians, we're used to using the New Testament because it's, you know, but they use the Old Testament. That was their Bible. When Jesus comes into the synagogue and reads some portion of Scripture from, uh, from Isaiah, where he says uh, um, that he has come, the Lord has anointed him to proclaim the good news and so on and so forth. He says, today this has been fulfilled in, in your presence. Uh, he uses the Old Testament to show who he is. So uh, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with those men who were saddened by the events, not realizing that Christ had been had, was risen and Christ was talking with them, took them from beginning with Moses all on through the Old, whole Old Testament to show how the, the Old Testament pointed to him. He used the Old Testament. So as far as for Christians, our, our um, the more we understand the Old Testament, then we'll, I think the more we'll understand the New Testament. We'll see concepts that have been developed and begun in the Old Testament, see their fulfillment and further develop in new, and it will make sense. Things will connect, so to speak. Absolutely. Let me just mention a couple of other points that I think are very relevant. Um, why do Christians today need to study um, um, the the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, I would prefer to uh, reference them as, or the Tanakh? They should because when you read the Gospels, you are reading about events that took place under an Old Testament economy. Under the economy of the Tanakh, uh, you also should engage a study of this because many of the Old Testament's principles and teachings are timeless truths. Uh, and also because two basic yet essential themes of the Bible begin in the Old Testament. The concept of covenant and the concept of kingdom begins really in the Old Testament. And as scholars of old have argued for years, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. The Old Testament contains Christ implicitly and the New Testament contains Christ explicitly. The moral precepts in the Old Testament are brought to perfection by Christ in the New Testament ethically and the ritualistic precepts in the Old Testament are brought to completion by Christ in the New Testament by way of propitiation. In other words, he satisfies the moral mandates that are presented to us in the Old Testament. And we should remember this as a summary of this kind of concept. And that is, do you realize that the entire earthly life of Jesus was lived out under the economy of the Tanakh, or at least within a transition from that particular area to the New Testament era? So he honors 
the, the Tanakh by coming under that particular period of time and economy and indeed fulfilling the promises that were anticipated under the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. Well, that raises the question, doesn't it, I, I guess. Why was there an interlude between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New? That's a good question. <laughs> why did God stop uh, speaking, I think, uh, or why is there an interlude? Only God knows. Uh, we do know that when he finishes up with the prophet uh, Malachi, uh, where he ends with the anticipation of a future Elijah to precede the day of the Lord, Matthew picks it up right from that point, pointing to John the Baptist, Matthew and the Gospels, Gospel writers. We don't know why, uh, why the uh, um, Lord chose not to reveal any more scripture in the Old Testament, perhaps it was complete, perhaps we don't know. We don't, does, the scripture doesn't tell us why. We do know that the Jewish uh, scribes recognized this. They recognized that the scriptures ended at that t- time, that the voice of the prophets had, had ceased, and they were waiting for the next uh, voice, so to speak, to come, which would later on would be John the Baptist. Um, I I would probably go further and and say I'd like to quote from Josephus in his Contra Appian 1.8. He says, first, for we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another as the Greeks have, but only 22 books we should know that we have the exact same in our 39 books. Uh, The numbering is different because, for instance, the minor prophets would comprise one book versus being counted as an individual book each time. He says, but only 22 books which contain the records of all the past times which are justly believed to be divine. divine. But then he goes on and says, it is true our history has been written since Artaxerxes, very peculiarly, but has not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers, because there has not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. In other words, what he recognizes is there is some transition that is going on so that the books that were being written um, during the intertestamental period uh, did not have divine impress or the kind of um, language that events God breathe as did the books within the framework of the Tanakh. And so during this time, one of the reasons for the stop is that God stopped speaking. Now, uh, uh, the Bible has something to say about this, of course, because the text of Scripture says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. Uh, The concept is, or born of a woman, The concept is that God was structuring things so that uh, the, the Tanakh, specifically the law, worked as, according to Galatians, a tutor. It worked as an individual who walked us from one economy to the need of another economy so that everything that was mentioned by way of sacrifice in the Tanakh 
could find its fulfillment with the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who would serve as the ultimate high priest, number one. Number two, he would serve as the ultimate sacrifice so that he would be the once for all sacrifice, uh, uh, propitiating or satisfying in a way that the Old Testament sacrifices could not satisfy. Secondarily, as that priest, he was the only high priest who, after doing his due diligence and service, was able to sit down and rest because it literally uh, satisfied the wrath of God and it also satisfied the penalty that we owed God for cosmic treason. So accordingly, the reason for that stoppage is that message um, uh, essentially anticipated its fulfillment in the coming of Messiah, in the coming of the king, in the coming of that high priest, in the coming of that sacrificial lamb who would then bring us into and bring Israel into the fulfillment of those redemptive and, and and Davidic promises that would result in that new covenant referred to in Jeremiah 31. Well, with that review, uh, may I ask us to, to return back now to Genesis? Uh, and uh, for either of you gentlemen, um, tell me what is the contribution of Genesis uh, to the Torah and the Bible as a whole? Well, you know, Genesis is where it all begins. It is where the, the themes of uh, redemption, especially the th which is the main theme of the whole Bible, uh, the story of redemption begins, and other uh, you know themes of, of kingship and uh, and and promise of Messiah, and um, it begins in Genesis. So you have you have the beginnings there, and the themes that are started in Genesis carry on to the rest of the Torah and to the rest of the Old Testament, including the rest of the Old Testament, which we'll see in a second. So uh, Genesis contributes much. Uh, a lot of times when we come to the scriptures, especially Genesis and especially in, in the church, uh, we tend to focus on um, think topics that we're interested in. Um, how old is the earth? <laughs> um, was, uh, how, how, how did the people live many years or... or uh, was there, um, were there, um, what, what was the, the cause of the flood or what was these type of things? Um, but the, the writer of scripture, uh, writer of the Old Testament, Moses of the new, of the um, book of Genesis, um, has a lot to say to Israel. Um, and he's talking to Israel about the relationship with God. And he, um, wants to instruct them about who God is. We gotta remember that the Bible is, is, an accurate historical book, but it's primary a theological book. It's a book to teach us about God. So yes, it may touch upon issues of science and uh, so social uh, ethics and whatnot, but primarily it's to teach us about God. So the beginnings are, are, are the ideas that start in Genesis are continued. Um, Genesis, uh, as part of the Torah, begins with, with the question in the first 11 chapters especially starting from chapter 3, which is the fall. How can the relationship that was broken in the fall be reestablished or restored? That's the question that happens after the fall. We see from chapters 4 through chapter, or at least to chapter 11, man's attempts to try to do something about it, and the and, and, and in one sense, God saying to man, if you try on your own, here's what is going to result, and the result is man falling to further sin. In chapter 12 of Genesis is where God steps in and begins to uh, 
put together a plan of redemption, so to speak, through Abraham and his promises, which we'll look at later on, through the rest of, of actually the Pentateuch, uh, chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. So those are the major breakouts of the, um, of, uh, the major uh, structure of Genesis, the first 50 chapters, 1 through 11. How can that relationship be restored? Chapter 12 be- provides the answer. It is going to be through a covenant that God makes with Abraham, and the, an agreement, a promise, a threefold promise that he tells Abraham uh, that he will begin to fulfill and the rest of Genesis is sort of asking the question, can God keep his promise uh, given certain obstacles and hurdles that come along the way? Because there will be a lot of things that come along the way that will challenge his promise. For example, he says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Well, Abraham's old, his wife's very old and barren. How is God going to get around this? Uh, those are just some, that's just one example. Uh, of we'll see God's faithfulness throughout the uh, throughout. So it just it begins a lot, and just probably more. I'm sure CL wants to add to that, or David wants to ask. Well, I, w- I was going to ask you, gentlemen, what is the conclusion for our listeners of Genesis prior to moving into Exodus? Um, I, I probably <clears throat> before before I engage in that question, I probably should add to the last just a Jewish perspective. Uh, to that, because when we look at it, interestingly enough, when we look at the 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 book of Genesis, there is the possibility of looking in two different ways, um, and and I think the first and foremost way should be um, uh, to look at it through the eyes of that culture uh, that uh, it speaks about. So if I'm Jewish, and, and, and I'll, I'll play that role for a moment, um, I, I would say it, it's great that you, you refer to the book as Genesis, uh, Genesis Beginnings, and it's great that you see the prehistory in chapters 1 through 11, and it's great that you see redemptive history in chapters 12 through 50, but really what it says to us as a nation is the book of Genesis the name, the beginning of the book is Bereshith. And this term, Bereshith, does really speak of origins. But when we look at this, uh, it it not only speaks about God, and that's accurate, uh, it would certainly speak to us about Hashem or or the name or, or speak to us about the sovereign, the king. But it speaks to us about our covenant with God as well. Because when we think of God, we don't just think of God as a distinct power who is just trying to illustrate his power as we were, as it were. But we think of him as God who longs to illustrate his desire and longing to relate not only to the world, but how is he going to relate to the world? He's going to relate to the world through the election of a nation. And so uh, while God is the focal point of the book, another focal point that would be a sub-point of that book, that's an immediate sub-point of that book, is not just his redemptive plan for the world, but how he's going to go about that, uh, how he's going to go about redeeming the goyim or the nations. And what he's going to do is he's going to elect a nation, and that's going to start with the election of our forefather, Avraham. Yeah, and and that's... I, I completely agree with that, <laughs> because in one sense, uh, it's intertwined. Our learning of God is not divorced from our relationship with God. In other words, Israel is learning who this God is, and the fact that yes, God has chosen them 
Why? Because they're they're the they're the greatest and they're the largest and whatever. No, he chooses them because he wants to use them as a vehicle, a vessel through whom he is going to bless the whole world. Ultimately, he will bring the Messiah or has brought the Messiah through through uh, uh, through Jesus. Uh, so, uh, and part of it, I think, as Christians and looking and putting on on our Jewish glasses, which probably is the best thing you can do when you when you when you're reading the Old Testament, is to think in those terms of of how how would they have thought of this as being part of this wonderful plan i'm not sure if they if if they completely understood uh i think um uh, abraham may have understood a little bit when he god takes him out outside to look at the stars and he says can you count the stars he says no well that's how numerable your descendants are going to be i don't think it really clicked or uh, hit them uh, and I don't think they understood clearly just how wonderful God was going to use the Jewish people, and ultimately through through the Messiah. So, um, so yeah, just to put agreement on on that, that it's it's a book about God, but it's also God's relationship with with man and how He's attempting or how He has reconciled. Through the Jewish nation, right, and 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 let me just highlight that because when we look at the book um, from a Jewish perspective, I think we should also appreciate uh, there was one particular quote from a film that I thought was so insightful, where and I'll just state it: there is no nation on earth that has suffered like the Jewish nation. There is a a, a precariousness to being the chosen people of God, if you will. And that precariousness has courted them from uh, the inception of God's choice of them. Uh, no group can claim equal suffering as they have. And, and I say that historically and yet in humility at the same time. And so when we're reading the book, it's not just God's election of the nation, but how does this book begin? This book begins in, 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 in chapter 12 with the election of Abraham and problems court Abraham and his wife very early, Sarai, um, and I should say Avram or Abram and, and his wife Sarai, who will become Sarah later on. But uh, she's barren. I mean, it starts off with difficulties where this nation very early in Abraham are taught to trust God. And so I would go back and I would add to what you said, John, and I would say, albeit he may not have understood he starts out with extraordinary faith, so there, there's something more where he's seen God operate and accomplish the impossible in his life. And so he may not have understood to the full-orbed extent, but certainly he's understanding a great deal more than the modern evangelical is willing to give him credit for because he's seen God move right. to open up his wife's womb and to, to, to give the life of his son when he was going to sacrifice him. And so I think that question that God asks, is there anything too hard for me with men? This is impossible. But with God, this is not impossible. Yeah, and I didn't mean to say that what I, I guess what I was trying to say on that was I don't know if you realize that literally billions of people would be blessed oh yes because of of what of his one act of faith and and not only that it's truly God's faithfulness because God chose Abraham or Abraham or Avram um he wasn't looking for God God was looking for him and but through his act of obedience and act of faith and his his life of faith God blessed him beyond his wildest imagination. 
Yes, see, I think he. I think you're exactly right. He has seen. He has witnessed God providing with a child. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when he's an old man, I mean, I mean that's why you know, they're, they're, it's it's funny because only God could do something like that. You know, only only God, and this is the kind of God He is 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 to um, to show Himself faithful and strong and good. So, so at the close, to answer your question, David, at the close of this book. When you're looking at it, we see it as, from a Jewish perspective, we would say certainly it begins with um, uh, the phenomenal, extraordinary omnipotence of God, the power of God. And you have to appreciate his omniscience as well. His wisdom, his sagacity is extraordinary. But when you go from the creation of the world, how does the book end? You have 70 or thereabout individuals who are in Goshen within Egypt who are in the land... Um, uh, and, and they end on a wonderful note, but they're still in bondage. And that's going to go on for about 430 years. And so redemptive history does not begin pretty. It begins very difficult. And, and what is the benefit for the world is going to cost Abraham a great deal, Isaac a great deal, Jacob a great deal, Joseph a great deal. Ultimately, it's going to cause the Messiah a great deal. When he wants to introduce redemption, he introduces it on the pallet, on the foundation of suffering. It has cost the Jewish people a great deal, not only to be elected, but for the benefit of the world, namely the Messiah, to come through their womb. So essentially, we're seeing a very broad sacrifice here as we enter into the next book, Exodus. I love what you said because it's not just the sacrifice of Messiah. And I think this is often what we miss. It's in many ways the voluntary with Moses, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, etc., with Joseph, but many times the involuntary suffering of a nation in order to see the benefits of Messiah come to the world. And I don't think we're always reverential and appreciative of that, both when we do exegesis as well as in sociological circles. I don't think we're grateful enough. Uh, I don't think we're thankful enough. And I don't think our eyes are open to that always as much as it should be. John, you have something to say? (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to say. Um, I I think in, in, in Exodus and the question often comes up is why why wait so long you know why 400 or so years of slavery and bondage and i think because that's where exodus picks up you know genesis ends with them going to egypt 70 or so people 400 and some years later on exodus begins they're in egypt they're very numerable and they're in slavery and they're bondage fulfillment of what god told abraham abraham says listen your people are going to be enslaved to the in a country that's not their own, but I'll bring them back. And so the question is, why? Why is God? Why did God allow this? Because you know we want things to happen in our timing, but God has a reason for His timing. Partly, I think, is to demonstrate His own power, His own um, um, ability to deliver them from the most uh, difficult of circumstances. They are enslaved by Egypt, a world power at that time. And they are, um, they are set free through a man and his staff and his God. Now, let me ask this question. Why is it that God 
states to Abraham and those who follow that it will be their following generations that will be in pain for what has occurred. What is, what is behind that? It always seems to be that the generations afterwards have to pay the cost. I'm not sure. Repeat that again. Uh, let, let me take a stab at this. If I, if I understand what you're saying, you're saying that uh, there certainly was a, a, a level of suffering that Abraham underwent uh, during his um, uh, during his time, his sojourn, his pilgrimage, if you will, here on earth under the covenantal promise of God. But it seems that his generations thereafter suffered a great deal more Absolutely. than he did. Um, first of all, God is very honest about that. He says, your, your seed or your, your children or the nation will be in bondage for 430 years. Um, secondarily, as this is going on, it has to be understood that they are operating within the world system that, uh, and, and I think Rob Shaul or the Apostle Paul actually has a great deal to say about this in, in Romans chapter number 1 uh, and also in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Uh, let me highlight Romans chapter number 1 because um, the goyim or the nations from a Jewish perspective have not embraced God. They've resist God. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually says it in this way, that much like a spring or a coil, they've resisted truth to the point where uh, it, whether God has given them the entire world that declares his glory and evinces the fact that there is a God, or whether he's placed it within the conscious of man, man constantly resists that. And what nation represents God more than the Jewish nation? And so they would be the proper victims to attack. I don't mean proper as in, yes, I forward their being attacked, but it is rather understood that they would be attacked in so much as whose nation is like this nation? Whose nation has a God like this nation from the biblical perspective? And so uh, when, when you would have wars in the Old Testament, or in the Tanakh, one nation against Israel. Uh, this was not just a battle of men and brawn and bones and blood, but uh, it really spoke higher. This was one deity against another deity. And the nation that won, it was thought in their culture that that deity had not only bested the nation, but had bested their God. And so to resist uh, 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 the God of the Hebrews and to resist that nation, uh, many times other nations would come in and they would try to make the other nations subservient and they would try and attack them. And, and what they represented, monotheism, uh, 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 ethics, sound ethics, they often would attack that. And, and so they really paid for that because there's a price. And here's the concept. Why would God allow that? And why did the generations suffer in that way? Uh, number one, I want to say that none has suffered in equality to the Messiah, the seed of Abraham. But secondarily, God also suffered with the nation as they suffered. But third, I think the reason why God allows this in direct answer to your question is because he wants it to be understood that redemption all throughout its history comes with a price. It's not an easy task. It costs not only God something, but the line that God chooses to use, it costs them deeply. And the bloodshed is often gross and it's difficult, but we need to remember 
that it's costly and it's sorrowful. And I think that's one of the reasons why they've suffered over the years. Well, returning uh, to the overview of Exodus <clears throat> prior, to, prior to going into Leviticus, can you just, one of you gentlemen, uh, give me a, a broad stroke of what Exodus uh, needs to, uh, to tell us? Basically, Exodus tells us, first of all, the people are in bondage, they're in slavery, but it shows us the process through which God sets them free and brings them out. He delivers his people out of Egypt as, as promised to Abraham. He promised Abraham this, that his people would have a land, so he's going to bring them out of Egypt to prepare them to go into the land. Secondly, uh, and, and or primarily with this, it, he's showing not only that he's going to deliver, but how he delivers you know, through, as I said, through Moses, through his staff, and through, through God defeating the Egyptian uh, gods, so to speak, uh, mightily and handily. So he brings them out of Egypt. Secondly, he also now wants to then develop them into a nation because he's going to use these people to sort of be a light to the rest of the world. And so he has to begin to teach them what he's like, who he is. That's why Exodus ends with the building of the tabernacle and his presence being with them, going with them, uh, and they will begin to now learn who this God is, how to approach this God, how to become a people of God. So it's kind of a twofold aspect here. If I may, again, add from the Jewish perspective, I think whereas we, we look at this book and we say, oh, okay, great, that there's the coming out of Egypt, there's a departure from Egypt, and the people of God are liberated. Let me, let me say just a few more things to add to that from the Jewish perspective. <clears throat> this book represents the justice of God. Is God going to allow in the Pharaoh who committed gross infanticide or the murder of their children to get away with it? Is God going to allow this Pharaoh who has taken advantage of free labor all these years and, and, and literally degraded and taken away the dignity and the value of so many countless individuals who didn't even receive the common courtesy of a proper burial to, to, to be ignored? No. Remember the God of Genesis. Uh, uh, Cain, what you did does not go beyond my hearing. Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. What God is going to illustrate is he's a God of justice. If I may add this, um, it, during the civil rights movement, this particular book was also used as a book of justice so that uh, as God called his people out of Egypt to redeem the nation, God is a God who will not allow injustices to go undealt with. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And the nation is not only redeemed because they go from, from a, a, a harsh taskmaster, from multitudinous deaths, to, to actually having a, a sacrifice on their part with the blood over the doorposts. And, and I know that um, naturalists will say, well, there had to be reasons why uh, they died, uh, the Egyptian firstborn died, versus um, uh, the firstborn of, uh, um, of Israel. Uh, later on, God will say, listen, all of the firstborn belong to me. That's going to be the concept of the nation, or not the nation, the tribe of Levi, uh, a, a group to be set aside specifically to see to uh, those tasks pertaining to the worship of Hashem or the worship of God. Um, uh, so this book is extraordinary in its speech concerning justice, uh, 
in its speech concerning redemption of the nation of Israel. But also, it's important because why did God bring us out? Hear very well what God says through Moses to Pharaoh. Let my people go so they can worship me. Redemption is, as John said, for restoration of relationship for doxological reasons or in order to highlight and pay homage to the glory of the indescribable God. What they had there in the wilderness was like no other nation had because it wasn't fictive concepts or rituals that were going on of empty worship and banter. No, what was going on was not only the redeeming of a nation, but it was, listen very carefully because this is of the utmost importance, what we see there is God tabernacling amongst the nation in the Ark of the Covenant by way of his presence. This is going to be the same language, gentlemen, that's going to be used in the Gospel of John, chapter number one, when the Son of God tabernacles or tents, pitches his tent with men. And how is he going to do it with men? How do we know that he'll do it? The Hebrews can say, we know that he'll do it faithfully because he did it with us as a nation. When we were in the wilderness, we saw the effulgent express glory of God and received the word of God and received the mandates of God and the instruction or the teachings or the Torah of God. Yeah, and just to, just to add, I mean, they're learning a lot about who God is. They, they see the power of God. He is stronger than the Egyptians, so much so that he can part the Red Sea to rescue us. He is a God who provides. He provides the manna and the, and the, and the quail and the meat for them to eat and water. We think about it, they're traveling in the, in the middle of the desert or you know, traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. You don't exactly have supermarkets on, along the way, there, and you have perhaps hundreds of thousands of people, if not more. We don't know the exact amount, but lots and lots of people to provide for. He protects them, of course, protects them, of course, during their journeys, for, um, protect them from, from, their, uh, um, from the enemies and whatnot. Uh, he, his presence is there with them. Here's a God who goes with his people wherever they're going. He's with them. He's leading them. They have this advantage. And, and the other thing is he promises them um, to be with them when they go into the promised land. He says, listen, there's going to be people there, but I'll fight for you. Um, these are the concepts they're, they're beginning to learn. Now, you know, within the book of Exodus and um, beginning to become acquainted with um, and what's, it's just amazing because um, he, the other gods that they had, were, had seen or exposed could, it was no match for who, who was, uh, this God who provides some things. And the other thing, he kept his promise to Abraham. He had promised Abraham 400 so years beforehand that he would make him to a, a, a people, give the people a land, and bless, bless these people. He's keeping his promise despite all these years of silence. Yeah. Thus the name of the book from a Hebrew perspective, not exhadas from the Septuagint mainly, but the Greek. Vishemot, right, right. But from a Hebrew perspective, Vishemot, it starts off after you leave these 70 people over there in Egypt and, and, and you wonder, okay, has God forgotten? Uh, is God faithful? How does the book of Exodus open up? Vishemot, and these are the names. He never forgot about us as a nation. He never forsook his promises. He's, he's the God of chesed, covenantal, loyal, steady-handedness. And again, at the end of all of this, 
we see yet another huge sacrifice in Moses. And and I know that we don't want to go back over uh, that to, to a great extent because we covered it last week. Um, but that really does conclude this part of the Torah uh, and, and, and acts as a, a huge message for us in the way that Moses has to take on this huge responsibility. Oh, absolutely. Uh, who wants the responsibility of shepherding a people through being the nation through whom the Redeemer will come? Because the people don't completely understand if we're chosen, why are we suffering like this? Uh, so who wants to walk them through the process of embracing their suffering? Is it, is it not the saddest thing in the Bible that there is Moses who has gone through torment and all he is allowed to do at the end of it is look at the promised land and not actually touch it? I probably wouldn't say the saddest. I reserve the saddest for the Son of God who is the only one who can be said to be innocent not only innocent, righteous, and his sufferings are sad, but it's a redemptive sadness. But for me, it's up there in my top five because, oh my, and you know how I feel about this, David. I, I can never talk about this without weeping because I, I want to, you know, my, my thing is I want to push him off the mountain, <laughs> let him get over into the land, at least with a finger. Maybe, you know. maybe let him bungee jump down just at least get over it. but I, you know here's i mean here's here's Moses obviously he is he's gone through a lot i mean leading these people he's been through a lot and for him to not make it it, it is it's a it's a it's a huge blow but i think god is gracious enough to show him the land but um it, i can relate to we can relate to something we've worked on all our lives maybe and to see it vanish should we make Moses as monumental figure as Abraham? Ooh, or, 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 sim or simply place him in a different era and a at a different stage of this development of the Bible? I'm going to be careful in saying monumental um, because I don't want to be idolatrous in my speech. Uh, However, let me then go back and say, knowing terminology, I know that it's not used in a deistic kind of <clears throat> manner. And so let me go back with that understanding that you're putting behind the concept of monumentalism. And, and let me say, I'm not sure that Moses would place himself as high and significant as Abraham, as the father of the nation. And so I want to be careful to place him uh, uh, on a lower class, but certainly a significant class. I mean, well, think about this. I, he is revered by the Jewish people as one of the, I mean, not the, the top. Premier the, prophet. the premier prophet. Well, I, but, and, I, I, but, but I thought for the Jewish people, it was actually Abraham who is considered that. It, well, the, uh, more so than Moses. He's considered the father of the nation. Right. He's considered the father of the nation. And, and, uh, and, and I'm not certain that they would withhold from him this aspect of certain 
concepts of a prophet uh, because, in fact, God refers to him as such and says when he's dealing with the king, he says, go to Abraham and have him pray for you because he's a prophet. So he's certainly a prophet, but Abraham is not a prophet on the scale of Moses in the in the Jewish mindset right. nor in the biblical mindset. But so I would say they're in different categories. The one, a father of the nation, the premier, the, the, the patriarch of the nation extraordinaire, the other, the premier prophet of the nation. Yeah, that's a good distinction. I think also that it's it, you can't really, it's hard to, uh, it's not fair to put them up against each other. It's more of he is part of the development of the plan. The plan that begins with Abraham, continues on through Moses, will include David and his ascendant to the Messiah. He plays his part, but he's not categorically equal. Okay, let me move on to Leviticus. And as a preface to that, CL, might I ask you, how does the closing story of Exodus lead seamlessly into Leviticus? The closing story. You would give me that question. (laughs) (laughs) I I like to challenge you, (laughs) CL. Well done, David. You you do a good job with that. Why are you turning it, the the the, the <laughs> yeah, I'll answer of, the question why you're turning there. The, the, <laughs> it, it's because I in the summary you 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 want a brief summary and I know what you want and I can't give it to you. Uh, There's no uh, brief here. <laughs> when you when you close the book of Exodus, you end with and this is beautiful, the erection of the tabernacle and. The latter section, this is the latter section of the book, verse 34, chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, the premier prophet of the nation, my addition, was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. You ask, how does it close? It begins with the redemption of a nation for the purpose of worshiping God and being a light to the nations. In the midst of this book, most people would say is a very boring section. I don't think so. It's such a contribution, in fact. We'll talk about that later. But it's from this section. Uh, How do we know what work shouldn't be done on Shabbat or on the Sabbath? From whatever comprised work on the tabernacle, that's what it's derived from. So that section that seems boring to most conservative evangelical Christians is is quite telling and instructive to the Jewish nation, okay? So it's highly significant. But how does he close this book out? What is the goal of redemption but the glory of God abiding in your midst? Okay, uh, think about this too, is now you have... It's the first time I've seen you lost for words. <laughs> <laughs> that never happens, no. <laughs> Think about this. Here we have, for the first time, in one, in one capacity since Genesis chapter 2, where God and man are dwelling together. Here we have the 
beginnings of the reestablishment of the presence of God in the midst with his people. Whereas in Genesis 1 and 2, they're in the garden. Genesis 3, they're thrown out of the garden. Now we have this begun. Now they're beginning to dwell with this God in his glory, in, uh, in full of glory, to the point where obviously Moses can't enter into the tent. Then the question leads now into the book of Exodus, or Leviticus rather. The question is this, how then do you relate to this God? How do you approach this God? How do you maintain the fellowship with God? Because obviously if Moses can't go into the tent, how then do you proceed? And that's the, that's the topic of Leviticus. It's, it's talking about the, uh, the idea of how God is to be approached through sacrifice, uh, the costliness of sin, the sanctification of maintaining this relationship with God. This is where you have Leviticus giving us the, the laws of approach and, and the priestly laws uh, so they can govern properly how to then dwell in the presence of God. And they'll have to, of course, you know, know how to set up the tent and know how to, you know, how things are going to work. But especially the concept of, of approaching this holy God. I think it's interesting that they're learning a lot of things about God. And now they're learning about God's pure holiness. And then you can't just go walk into his presence because of our, our, uh, our stained sin. So now God begins to teach them that it takes sacrifice. I, I don't think this is incidental, coincidental, or accidental. In, in fact, let me state it this way. The fact that this book ends in this way with the glory of God amongst men is a depiction of Emmanuel, God with us. Further, it's an eschatological depiction because the tabernacle of God in Revelation is now among men. Listen, when justice is satisfied, isn't that the beginning of the book? When God's people are redeemed, we see that with his nation being redeemed, God redeems them to dwell among them. Well, that really is the gospel. And that really is what we look forward to. We live now in this wilderness world in a relationship with Christ. And why has he redeemed us, pray tell? That he might live with us we might live with him, paradise restored. And it's a beautiful picture of Christ himself. Here you have, in Leviticus, you have a picture of the presence of God dwelling with his people, and you have also the priest of God offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. Well, now you have Christ, who is the presence of God. He is the one who is tabernacle, taking on skin, flesh. He is also the priest before the people, and he is the sacrifice himself. He is all... Leviticus points to Christ in so many ways. He fulfills these concepts beautifully. And here you have the beginning of these concepts that we see uh, where um, Christ will ultimately fulfill, or has. Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. Could you just give me CL in the closing two minutes? Um, just an overview for our listeners of Levitus, Leviticus and what we can look forward to next week. I think from a Jewish perspective, we can look forward to the sanctification of the nation and a means and methodology. We have the place where God will be worshipped. We have his presence there. But what needs to occur for fellowship to be consistent? Because the concept is not just we're close to God. Hurrah, let us be flippant. No. There's a price for God to come close to us. 
but there is a price to be paid for him to remain close to us. And we have to be certain to be pure vessels willing to entertain in our midst the presence of the almighty transcendent glory of God. John Corr, C.L. Mitchell, thank you so much uh, for our introduction to this. Um, I know that we were supposed to cover a lot more today, but uh, we, we've done very well, and uh, thank you so much. And for our listeners, uh, we will be continuing uh, the Torah with Numbers, Deuteronomy, and uh, talking about the uh, the greater impacts, uh, not only on the Hebrew nation, but also our today's society in next week's program. We hope you have enjoyed this. C.L. Mitchell, John Corr, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, we, we do hope that you have enjoyed this as much as we have. And uh, you can listen to this and any other program uh, at davidgibbons.org. And feel free to uh, provide feedback or comments at our blog. And either of these gentlemen, I'm sure, will be happy to respond to that feedback or, or questions that you may have. Meanwhile, wherever you may be in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.